Hello and welcome to this first episode of The Pisky Trap, which is a new series where we explore some of the folklore, history and legends from Devon and Cornwall. First off, um, <laughs> I have to apologise for the cameos by the birds outside. Um, I live in a little village in Cornwall and outside my window are lots and lots of birds that live in the hedgerow. So they're going to be a sort of regular guest to the show. Hopefully they won't prove too annoying. I like to think that they're going to add to a bit of the ambiance, um, but just so that you're aware. Um, and I don't know what it's like where you guys are at the moment, but it's horrendous. The weather is absolutely chucking it down. So it, it's a bit crazy, but it feels like the right time to kind of tell macabre tales of, in this case, ghosts and sorcerers. So in this first episode, I wanted to explore a place called Pengersic Castle, which is on Cornwall's south coast. It's a place that sits between Penzance and Helston. And the site itself seems to be very, very old. You'll hear later on from a chap that I spoke to called Jay Hodgetts, who's worked at the castle for a long time and now lives there. And he seems to think that there's been occupation on that same site going back potentially thousands of years. But certainly in the past few hundred years, the castle has gained this reputation for being a very haunted place. And there's quite a lot of stories surrounding it, a huge amount of folklore. Some of it is to do with a range of ghost stories that are attached to the castle itself. And some of it is to do with this character known as the Dark Lord of Pengersic, or the Sorcerer, or Conjurer, as he's sometimes called, of Pengersic. And there's a lot of stories that are written about him. So what I wanted to do was to uh, explore a little bit about the history of the actual castle, what we actually know about it, and try to understand a little bit of, of how it got this reputation, where some of these stories may have come from. My first encounter with Pengersic Castle was probably from watching it on TV. I have a feeling it was on a TV series called 14 TV back in, probably in the late 1990s. But I'd seen it also crop up on shows like Most Haunted and that kind of thing in the early 2000s. And for a while it seemed to often be in the limelight because of its haunted reputation. There was a big thing for a while of uh, sort of paranormal shows and, you know, ghost investigation type shows. And the castle has kind of since moved away from those kind of events and more towards hosting weddings and events, because it's, it's a very beautiful place. I first visited the castle back in 2005. I was quite surprised by how small it was, uh, first off, because I think I had in my mind this vision of a, a big, spooky, gothic castle. But when you get there, you've got these really nicely landscaped gardens. It's quite very pretty and very picturesque. Um, and then you've got this single tower in the middle of that and it doesn't look particularly imposing it doesn't look that scary but it does have this reputation attached to it and somehow that makes it more fascinating because it's sort of it's a little bit out of the way it's sort of tucked away behind these these trees um, not far from the beach and it's fairly sort of unassuming but it has this real reputation so in this episode I really wanted to kind of look at how this castle has managed to, to garner this sort of ghastly, macabre reputation and, and all these ghost stories and tales of sorcerers and witches and murders and that kind of thing. Anyway, enough of my rambling. Without further ado, here's our first episode on Pengersic Castle. I hope you enjoy. Pengersic Castle 
among the most curious of the stories once told, I believe they are nearly all forgotten, are those connected with Pengersic Castle. A small tower alone remains to note the site of a once famous fortified place. This castle was said to have been occupied, in the time of Henry VIII, by a man who had committed some great crime, but long previous to that period the place was famous for its wickedness. That was a quote from a book by Robert Hunt called Popular Romances of the West of England, which was published in the 1860s. It gives us this description of Pengersic Castle. The castle basically sits at a place called Prey Sands, which is on Cornwall's south coast between Penzance and Helston. And it's a place that's long had this reputation for strange tales and legends. It's appeared in countless books on the subject of ghosts and folk tales and things like that. And that long association that it's had with the paranormal has meant that it's been the subject of lots of different TV shows as well. But if you go there today and you look at the castle, the tower that you'll see, that appears to date from sometime in the 1500s and was supposedly built by a man called John Milliton, who we'll come back to a little bit later. But I've done a bit of research, and according to a few different sources, it seems that there's been a castle on that same site going back to the 1100s as well. So, aside from the fact that there's clearly been a castle on that site for a long time, and it's, it's obviously very old, what is it about this place that makes it so fascinating? Well... If you were to go um, right now and you were to go and Google Pengersic Castle, I can pretty much guarantee that what will crop up will be phrases like Cornwall's most haunted castle or advertisements for ghost tours or paranormal nights and that kind of thing. Basically, over the centuries, there have been countless stories surrounding the castle that have built up, often to do with ghosts. Some of the stories are particularly famous, and because there's so many stories out there, what I've had to do for this episode is to really collect together some of the stories that really stand out, because either they stand the test of time and they're stories that have existed for a long time, or because they're particularly famous. Otherwise, to go through every single story would, would take far too long. So I've chosen to prioritise the most famous stories and the ones that tend to crop up most often in the course of my research. There was a famous paranormal investigator and author called Peter Underwood who wrote a book called Ghosts of Cornwall, and in it he said this, and I quote, Pengersic Castle was once occupied by the violent Henry de Pengersic, known as Henry Le Fort, who was excommunicated for attacking and wounding a vicar and a monk. This incident is recorded time and again across lots of different sources, and it's this particular event that's linked with the spirit of a monk, or a hooded figure who's said to haunt the area around the grounds outside the castle. And some people think that it's because of this event that the figure wanders the grounds restlessly to this day. Inside, the spirit of a woman has been seen standing by the window, and she's said to then go across the room towards the bed, where she lies down, and then appears to move and writhe in agony. And this seems to link in with a story of an alleged poisoning that took place at some point in the castle's past. 
And there have been lots of different theories as to who this woman could be. And some people have put forward that it might be a woman named Ingrina Godolphin, but no one is quite sure. Then there's another figure who's been seen at various points around the castle, who is described as being this dark lord of Pangersic. Again, no one's exactly sure who it might be, but one of the former owners was alleged to have dabbled in alchemy and the dark arts. So there's this theory that the Dark Lord of Pengersic may have been this particular individual, who in some sources conjured a demon somewhere in the castle, and this dark entity, this Dark Lord, is said to haunt the various rooms, and people have claimed to have felt this dark entity following them around. At the top of the tower is said to be the spirit of a teenage girl who tragically fell to her death many years ago. And visitors to the tower have said that they felt her presence. Some have felt uneasy, and some have felt that as if someone is playing with them, as if someone is luring them towards the edge of the tower, perhaps that this girl is reliving her final moments before she tragically fell. So there I've chosen some of the main stories that I've encountered in the course of my research. And like I said, there's, there's probably many more out there and lots of variations of those. But I've picked the ones that are perhaps the most famous. So what's going on at Pengersic Castle? And where do all these ghost stories come from? I have to wonder whether there's maybe something in the castle's past that might explain how it got this reputation and how all these legends sprang up because it's such a small area that you have to wonder why there are so many legends attached to such a small place. So I thought the best thing might be to go back to the beginning. Let's look at the history of the site and let's look at who was living there and what events may have occurred that might have contributed to these, these legends, to these stories. How can we separate perhaps the, the fact from the fiction, if you will? So I thought I'd start with this character of Henry Pengersic because his name crops up so often and because he's the first person really associated with the castle going back to the medieval period. And I've got a quote here from Historic England about the site which reads A number of early 13th century individuals are named de Pengersic, but many of them may have come from the adjacent hamlet. By the start of the 14th century, a Henry Lord of Pengersic was in control of the estate, and he may have been the person responsible for building the first defended house on the site. End quote. So now we're going back to the early 1300s here, when we've got Henry Pengersic, who is recorded as living there. Now, whether or not the Pengersic family were actually living at the castle site before that time or not appears to be up for debate. Um, because the castle's own website says the following. The Pengersic family lived here from the 12th century, before they suffered as a result of the plague in the 1400s. So it seems that the family could well have been at the castle for some time before the 1300s, and that perhaps the family line died out as a result of the plague, basically. What we know for certain is that by the 1330s, we've got Henry Pengersic living there. We know that partly because, as I mentioned earlier, he's excommunicated by the church 
for attacking members of the clergy. And this seems to crop up in lots of different sources. Here I'm quoting from Historic England, which simply says this. In 1335, Henry Lefort Pengersic was excommunicated for wounding a priest. End quote. And this is a story that keeps recurring. It sometimes mentions an attack on a priest, and in some accounts it mentions there was a priest and a monk. In some versions, the monk was based locally, while the priest had come down from Gloucestershire. And it's unclear whether this is in relation to one specific incident, or whether there were a couple of different events with a couple of different attacks. But either way, if these events did occur, then it might go some way to explaining why this legend of a ghostly monk haunting the grounds might have sprung up. But is there a way of looking into this a little bit further? Well, a little while back I got in touch with the castle about this project, and shortly afterwards I was contacted by a man named Jay Hodgetts, who's worked at the castle for 25 years, and in fact he now lives there. We had a Zoom conversation a few weeks back where I asked him about this particular subject. So we're talking 13th century, Duke of Cornwall builds um, Hales Abbey up in uh, Gloucestershire, and there would have been um, certain annual payments that had to be made to Hales Abbey um, as part of having the land here at Pengersey. And it was Henry Pengersic probably objected to having to pay this large amount of money or comparatively large amount of money for next to nothing for something up country. And so he, and they would send an abbot and a monk to come and collect the uh, dues every year. And so one year he decided he was going to murder them. And, um, and that could be the reason why he was excommunicated. I can see it, you know, this tucked away little place, miles away from anywhere by the sea. Um, you'd probably think you could get away with something like that in those days. Um, and um, what is interesting in, in that one, a particular form of habit that the monk wore in those days um, that has been seen by some people in the garden. And, um, and when people have described what they've seen, it fits this slightly unusual form of dress that the monk was wearing um, in the 13th century. So, so there is possibly something in all that. Um, I would I mean, think. Would you say you're fairly sceptical about it or are you, you sort of open to it? I mean, because I suppose if in that instance someone comes to you and goes, oh, I've seen this, do you know what that's about? That becomes more interesting to me than people who who go to a place simply to seek that out, if that makes yeah. sense. If, if it's something yeah. that's just... Um, it, it, accidental almost. Um, yeah. And I think I, I find it interesting. I'm, I'm open to, to all sorts of theories and ideas and keep an open mind about it. Um, 
but over the years, having been associated with here for 25 years or so, um, there is some stuff is out there on the internet and you can Google it and, 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 and have some um, mindset when you come here that you're going to see something specific. But there are some things that still aren't on the internet. And it's those things where they consistently come up and the same thing, there's got to be, well, I feel there must be something somewhere in it um, because you've not been able to research it terribly easily. So it seems that this story of a ghostly monk could well have its roots in this account of an attack on members of the church. Now, whilst we'll never know the exact details of what happened, it certainly seems plausible to me that Pengersik might have wished to avoid paying these tithes and then either sends the monks packing after giving them a, a bit of a beating or, perhaps even worse, by getting rid of them altogether. I want to jump forward now a little bit in the castle's history by around 100 years or so, because it seems that the impact of the Black Death meant that essentially the male line of the Pengersics dies out, and that through a series of different marriages, it eventually ended up in the hands of a man named John Milliton. Now, Milliton's a really fascinating character because he seems to be at the root of all these tales of the Dark Lord of Pengersic, and there are various murders that are attributed to him as well, including this alleged poisoning. However, we have to be a little bit careful here because... Some of the sources attribute these stories to John Milliton, who we know rebuilt the castle in the early 1500s, but some of them attribute them to William Milliton, who was his grandson. I've got an example here for you from Peter Underwood, who says the following. John Milliton, who rebuilt the place as a fortified manor, is thought by some people to haunt the house where he tried to murder his wife with poisoned wine, but she craftily changed goblet. Another story is that while they were dining together, Milliton suddenly announced he had poisoned his wife's drink, whereupon she replied, in that case they would both die, for she had poisoned his. End quote. So that's one take on it. But another writer called Sabine Baring Gould, who was writing in the 1800s, attributes this whole poisoning thing to William Milliton, who he claims had this really cat-and-dog relationship with his wife. He tells the story in a much more dramatised and, and theatrical way, and I've got an example of that for you here. They hated each other with a deadly hate, and at length each severally resolved that this incompatible union must end. William Milliton said to his wife, Honour, we have lived in wretchedness too long. Let us resolve in a reconciliation. Forget the past and begin a new life. Most certainly do I agree, said she. And, continued William, as a pledge of our reunion, let us have a feast tonight. So a banquet was spread in Pengersic Castle for them twain and none others. And when they had eaten well, William said, Let us drink to our reunion. I will drink if you will drink, said she. Then he drained his glass 
After that, she drained hers. With a bitter laugh, she said, William, you have but three minutes to live. Your cup was poisoned. And you, he retorted, have but five, for yours was poisoned also. It is well, said Honour. I am content. I shall have two minutes in which to triumph over your dead carcass and spurn it with my foot. As you can see, this is almost the stuff of Shakespearean tragedies and TV dramas, and it really starts to sit firmly now in the realm of legend and the storytelling tradition. And this is just the beginning. Uh, things really start to become much more weird and wonderful and, and whimsical once we enter the realm of the sorcerer of Pengersic. So I'm now going to turn to Robert Hunt again, who wrote down a little trilogy of stories, uh, the first of which is entitled How Pengersic Became a Sorcerer. And he basically tells how the first lord of Pengersic wants to marry his young son to a much older woman who's a member of the Godolphin family, a very distinguished local family. The Godolphin woman, it seems, is, is pretty keen. She's really attracted to the young Pengersic, but he's not interested at all, and eventually he turns her down. Despite her turning to a witch called the Witch of Fradham, asking her to brew all these love potions and try to put spells on young Pengersic, none of it works. And eventually she ends up marrying the older Pengersic instead. Now, this witch of Fradham has a young niece called Bitha, and she's been involved, recruited really, in this whole plot to brew love potions. But in the course of that, she herself also falls in love with young Pengersic. And this starts to spark a real jealousy and a bitter rivalry between the older woman, who's now stepmother to young Pengersic, and Bitha. Eventually, the stepmother manages to persuade the old Pengersic that his son is making unwanted advances towards her and that she fears for her safety. And she begs the old lord to have some sailors come and basically take his son away to sea, promising that she's going to provide him with a new heir soon anyway. However, the young Pengersic manages to evade all of these plots and eventually he decides to run away. And for many years... No one hears from him. Meanwhile, the stepmother and Bitha continue to keep plotting and counterplotting in efforts to try and get their hands on old Pengersic's wealth. And one day, when the old man is lying on his deathbed, Bitha finally reveals to him how wicked his wife has been, and she confesses to him that he's actually dying from the effects of a poison that she herself has administered. And here for the next part, I'm quoting directly from Hunt. The young lord, after long years, returned from some eastern lands with a princess for his wife, learned in all the magic sciences of those enchanted lands. He found his stepmother shut up in her chamber, with her skin covered with scales like a serpent, from the effects of all the poisons which she had so often been distilling for the old lord and his son. She refused to be seen, and eventually cast herself into the sea, to the relief of all parties. Bitha fared not much better. She lived on the downs in St. Hilary, and from the poisonous fumes she'd inhaled, and from her dealings with the devil, her skin had become of that of the colour of a toad. 
So to my mind, this is really starting to resemble something more like a fairy tale by this point. We've got all this plotting going on, we've got magic starting to come in, and we've got the idea of these two wicked women who are eventually punished for all their misdeeds. And then we've got the idea of this younger Lord Pengersic disappearing off to some far-flung land where he's initiated into the world of magic, and then he comes back with this mysterious young woman who's described as a princess. And Hunt says this, She was considered by all an outlandish woman, and by many declared to be a Saracen. No one beyond the selected servants was ever allowed within the walls of Pengersic Castle and they, it was said, were bound by magic spells. No one dared tell of anything transacted within the walls. Consequently, all was conjecture amongst the neighbouring peasantry, miners and fishermen. Certain it was, they said, that Pengersic would shut himself up for days together in his chamber, burning strange things which sent their strong odours not only to every part of the castle, but for miles around the country. Often at night, and especially in stormy weather, Pengersic was heard for hours together calling up the spirits by reading from his books in some unknown tongue. So this really becomes a sort of origin story, if you like, for the character of the Enchanter or the Sorcerer, who's later on established as, well, he's a bit of a conflicting character, really, because quite clearly he's dabbling here in the dark arts in these stories, but at the same time, Hunt describes him as as fighting back against the demons and that he's often aided by his wife, who plays the harp and sings these soft songs in her native tongue. But then he's described as riding a horse, which is said to be of satanic origin, which he's somehow tamed. And he's also described as being feared by everyone, but yet respected for his good deeds. So there's quite a lot going on there, really. Storyteller Mike O'Connor, in his book Cornish Folk Tales, tells a slightly different version, whereby the older Lord Pengersic is quite a cruel man, and he goes away to the Crusades, and when he comes back he's brought with him a bride who is a princess, but he doesn't treat her well at all, and in fact one day he ends up pushing her off a cliff, but somehow the baby in her arms survives, and eventually this baby grows up, and he himself, as an adult, goes off to foreign lands, and it's he who becomes learned in the ways of magic. Meanwhile, the older Lord Pengersic is haunted by the ghost of his wife, who appears to him in the form of a white hare, and one day while he's out riding, this hare runs across his path, and it frightens the horse, and both horse and rider end up careering off the cliff, and that's the end of old Lord Pengersic. Then the young Pengersic returns home, and he's brought with him his new wife. In this version of the tale, their return brings a kind of peace to the castle at last. But he finishes by saying that at night you can still see the ghost of young Pengersic casting fire and spells from the top of the tower. So there's a lot to unpick here in all these stories. But there is one thing that really stands out to me in the second of Robert Hunt's little trilogy, and it's the line that reads the following. In a marvellously short time, the castle, which yet bears his name, was rebuilt by this lord. So here, we might have a link to John Milliton, 
because we know that he rebuilt the castle at some point in the early 1500s. So could he have somehow been caught up in all of this mythology at some point down the line? Well, I raised this topic with Jay during our conversation, just to see if he might be able to shed a little bit more light on this. John Millerton himself was quite a wealthy bloke. He, he, um, he came from Devon and uh, it was Elizabeth Worth and, and Millerton that built the castle. And, and looking at the archeology span of, of the castle, of the tower, um, it certainly looks as if the tower was the, the first bit to be built. And then something happens and all of a sudden they go completely mad um, with great halls and large two-storey um, side wings and great big curtain walls and gatehouses and lots of elaborate stuff. And the dating seems to coincide with the wreck of the St. Anthony um, at Gunwallow. Now, the St. Anthony was the King of Portugal's flagship. Um, on board was his wife's dowry. Um, and by today's standards, the cargo was worth about 86 million. Um, now, um, Millerton got to hear that the, the ship had floundered and knew that it was something really quite important and special. And he got together with Godolphin and St. Auburn. So here you have the three uh, leading lights, the key figures, the people that are making all the laws and the rules and convicting people and standing in judgment, dashing over to Gunwallow to lighten the load of the ship and, and actually, it nearly sparked war off between Portugal and England. They were um, the, all three arrested, taken up to London, um, probably banged up in the tower. But, of course, um, Militon was supposed to be, was probably quite in with Henry VIII, um, it was Henry VIII that granted the license for the castle to be crenellated. Um, there is evidence to suggest that Militon was also keeper of Henry VIII's wine cellar, <laughs> which is quite nice work if you can get it. Um, so there's definitely a sort of best buddies thing going on there. Um, there was also a... Um, an account that most, if not all, of the sailors on board the St. Anthony had been murdered. So you've got no witnesses to what transpired. And eventually, um, uh, Millicent, Godolphin and St. Auburn were released and pardoned, uh, or pardoned and released. And when they came back to Cornwall, they all start these amazing building programs. So that's when Godolphin started to build his great hall. And that's when Millicent really started to take off with his building of Pengersic Castle. And it's thought that it is the 
proceeds of the the all the goodies that were on the St Anthony that went that funded the and bankrolled the building of Pengerset Castle. So yeah, ill-gotten gains to build a rather nice house um, by someone in a, a really serious position of authority, and and uh, yeah, things don't change, do they? No. <laughs> do you think this this whole thing about the the sort of militant being a conjurer thing comes in? What, do you think that that's well, linked with the fact that he maybe had a reputation because of the whole St Anthony thing and it just got embellished? Or I've done odd little bits of reading around it, and it would, from what I can tell, there there is a suggestion that John Millison was a bit of an alchemist. Right. Um, so he liked to play around with things that made loud bangs and crashes and lots of smoke. And, and there was um, myths and tales about seeing loud flashes of bright white light and smoke and stuff coming from the castle. And of course, that was probably militant playing around with all sorts of chemicals and, and things to see what, what, what happened as an experimental thing. Um, so I think that's possibly where it had come from. There's also talk about people speaking in strange tongues. And it may well be that some of the sailors from the um, St. Anthony may have survived and be brought back to Pengersic and held captive or, or put into service of some kind but they would be speaking in strange tongues because nobody else would, would understand. Another suggestion on, on that is that if Cornish was in wide use around here, around Pengersic, with Milliton coming from Devon, he would sound very different to the the resident Cornish population, and then you would get people talking in, in strange tongues as a, as a bit of a myth going on. It, it's thought that Millicent wasn't a particularly nice character. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the elements of the wrecking of the St. Anthony and the possible murder of all the sailors you know those three guys are spearheading all of that so they're they're going to be um culpable in in terms of any any um tales of people being murdered and 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 that sort of thing um and I'm guessing that a lot of the loot would have been brought back here and hidden. And the one thing that you want to do is to keep people away. Um, so any, any tales with negative connotations that would deter people from coming here are going to be elaborated on because 
word of mouth is is a very powerful means of communication, particularly in those days. So you spread the word that there's something unpleasant going on there, that, you know, stay away, don't go there after dark because it's a bit scary. Um, and, and uh, yeah, there's a, there's a wizard on the top of the tower because I've seen him conjuring up spells and making loud flashes of, of light and, and things like that, just reinforcing the idea of something negative um, rather than seeing it for perhaps what it really was. And it's a great way, like the ghost stories, it's a great way of keeping people away. So having delved a little bit deeper into the castle's history and having chatted to Jay to get his thoughts on it, I can easily see how a place like Pangersic developed this reputation over the years. Especially when you consider that at one point in later years it fell into ruin. And it's easy to see how an old ruined castle like that, tucked out of the way, becomes a place that's considered haunted. The place that you don't want to go to on dark nights. And then if we consider some of its dark past as well, all these tales about Henry Pengersik and the records that we do have that indicate he may well have attacked members of the clergy, whether he murdered them or not, we'll never know for sure. And then we've got the wreck of the St. Anthony and the little details that we can pull together, the fact that maybe some of that story was covered up. All of that starts to form part of the local legend and part of the folklore of the area. But what about some of the other stories? What about this alleged poisoning? What about this ghostly woman in the bedroom? What about the teenage girl who's supposed to have fallen from the tower? What about stories of a demon as well? Were these all later concoctions? Were they perhaps local stories and superstitions that were maybe encouraged by Militon himself? A way of keeping people away, a scare tactic, if you will. So, is the castle haunted? I don't know. I tend to be a bit more sceptical about it all these days, but having chatted to Jay, even he has said there's been the odd moments, the odd bumps in the night, if you will. Little things that have been inexplicable. And what is certain is that for such a relatively small place, it does have a lot of folklore attached to it, and that does make you wonder. For me, though, I think it's the stories that are most fascinating. The fact that they've been passed down over the years from generation to generation over the course of centuries, and no doubt they've been embellished and added to over the years, um, the product of maybe fertile imaginations and local superstitions. But I like to think that at the heart of any good ghost tale, any legend, that if you look hard enough, that perhaps there's a little nugget of truth in there somewhere, buried deep. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And join me next time, where we'll be exploring another ghostly tale, this time from Bodmin Jail and linked with a real-life murder case. I'd like to thank Jay Hodgetts from Pengersic Castle for all his help with this episode. And if you'd like to find out more, you can check out the reading list for this series. The Pisky Trap is hosted by me, Keith Wallace, with music by Elizabeth Westcott and original artwork by Karis Harrington. <laughs>